Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hey there, we made it. Time to cue the confetti again, my Bible study friends. Certainly by now you must know how much I love throwing confetti in the air for celebration, right? <laughs> you may be asking why all this confetti talk right about now anyway. Fair enough. I want to celebrate with you the fact that by the end of this episode, we will have studied together through the entirety of the first of the 66 books in the Bible. Yep, today is the conclusion of our study time together in the 42 chapters of the book of Job. Now that's absolutely something to celebrate, right? So very exciting for sure. Now, since we are going to cover quite a bit of material today, I thought it would be best to begin with a bit of an overview of what has already happened up to this point and what is to come. You know, one type of big picture view I often mention we should be looking for in our studies of the Bible. Let's pull from the It's Not Supposed to Be This Way study guide by Lisa Turkhurst to provide us with some framework. Job eventually demands that God show up and go on trial for allowing the righteous to suffer. And to Job's astonishment, God does speak to him out of a whirlwind. But instead of God being on trial, it is Job who has to answer God's questions. God shows him that he doesn't have anything close to the power or the wisdom needed to run the universe, so he would never understand the complexity of why God often allows the wicked to prosper and the righteous to suffer. Even in the midst of all this hardship, God invites honest conversation with Job, and in the end, it deepened Job's relationship with God immensely. Job obeys God by praying for his three friends who have acted like enemies. Then God restores his health and blessings and gives him new sons and daughters who can't replace the ones lost, but can at least give him some solace. God never explains to Job why he allowed him to suffer. He doesn't tell him about Satan's accusation. He doesn't tell him that he has used the situation to put a stop forever to the belief that all suffering is a result of actions by the one suffering. He doesn't point out that he has been refining Job. He doesn't tell him that millions of people are going to read his story in a book and come to know God better by it. He may even have had other reasons, but we don't know what they are. Ultimately, what helps Job is a right understanding of who God is. God remains good even when he allows hardships to happen. But don't miss this crucial detail. God didn't just leave us to suffer alone. God isn't just standing back watching us suffer. Through his son Jesus, he willingly entered our world and experienced its miseries alongside us. And he wants to enter into our here and now sufferings and bear them alongside us as well. With that in mind, but before we dive into our first scripture reading today, let's backtrack to then move ahead. You may remember near the end of the last episode of OOBT that I was reminded of Kansas thunderstorms while reading Job chapters 36 and 37. In that episode, I shared these words that may or may not sound vaguely familiar. <laughs> I said, yep, you heard that right, Kansas thunderstorms. You probably know the ones. You watch as those thick, massive clouds develop and then roll in. Frightening white streaks of zigzagged electricity light up the sky and come down to the ground. The thunder is often so forceful and loud, it can make the windows in your home rattle. God's majesty, power, on display. Sound at all familiar? 
Yes, no, maybe? <laughs> well, even if not, I think I gave enough of a recap to take a deeper dive into this interesting insight I found in several places in my research. But listen to how it is presented in the first five Suffering and Sovereignty Study Guide. When I came across this perspective in the questions of this guide, I decided to share it to help set us up for what is about to happen with God showing up to speak with Job. Without further ado, the study question for Job chapter 37 verses 1 and 2 reads, Elihu is anticipating the voice of God and the thunder that is literally building up around them. We know at least Job, his three friends, and Elihu are present watching the growing storm, but likely there is also a crowd of people present. Take some time to imagine the scene. How might you feel if you were present in the moment? Isn't that an amazing thought, friends? God showing up in a storm building in the distance. As a lifetime Kansan, I can say that I have watched countless massive, foreboding, breathtaking storm clouds build over the years, many as they pass on around us. God's majesty and power on display for sure. I so encourage each one of us to take a moment to imagine the setting scene happening here. So as I began my studies of chapters 38 through 42 for today's episode, I spent some time wondering how this particular storm came about. Was it there all at once, or did they watch in anticipation as the storm continued to build in the distance before God came to them? Here in Scripture is the answer I was seeking, and it is something I had never noticed in my readings of the book of Job before. Chapter 37, verses 1 and 2 in the ESV, or English Standard Version of the Bible, reads, At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Wow. Just wow. Okay, as an important side note, I have so very much to share with you as we wrap up our studies in the book of Job. With that being said, I plan to read as much of the scriptures as possible, but we'll have to ask you to do some reading on your own as well. My recommendation to all of us is to press pause right here and go read or even listen to the audio version of Job chapters 38 through 42 in a Bible translation or two, and then come back for our Bible study time together. If you aren't sure exactly where to go, go to the links to the YouVersion Bible app itself and Parallel View links in the show notes. So go ahead. I'll wait right here. I promise. (laughs) Welcome back, my Bible study friends. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed reading or listening to those chapters. I don't know about you, but I know I am super excited to begin reading from Job chapter 38. My oh my, we've waited a long time for God to show up and speak. Am I right? Let's get right into it, shall we? The message translation reads, And now, finally, God answered Job from the eye of a violent storm. He said, Why do you confuse the issue? Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? Pull yourself together, Job. Up on your feet. Stand tall. I have some questions for you, and I want some straight answers. Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me, since you know so much. Who decided on its size? Certainly you'll know that. Who came up with the blueprints and measurements? How was its foundation poured and who set the cornerstone? While the morning stars sang in chorus and all the angels shouted praise. And who took charge of the ocean when it gushed forth like a baby from the womb? That was me. I wrapped it in soft clouds and tucked it in safely at night. Then I made a playpen for it, a strong playpen so it couldn't run loose, and said, stay here, this is your place. Your wild tantrums are confined to this place. And have you ever ordered morning get up, told dawn get to work, so you could seize earth like a blanket and shake out the wicked like cockroaches? As the sun brings everything to light, 
brings out all the colors and shapes. The cover of darkness is snatched from the wicked. They're caught in the very act. Have you ever gotten to the true bottom of things? Explore the labyrinth-like caves of the deep ocean. Do you know the first thing about death? Do you have one clue regarding death's dark mysteries? And do you have any idea how large this earth is? Speak up if you have even the beginning of an answer. Do you know where light comes from and where darkness lives? So you can take them by the hand and lead them home when they get lost? Why, of course you know that. You've known them all your life, grown up in the same neighborhood with them. Have you ever traveled to where snow is made, seen the vault where hail is stockpiled, the arsenals of hail and snow that I keep in readiness for times of trouble and battle and war? Can you find your way to where lightning is launched or to the place from which the wind blows? Who do you suppose carves canyons from the downpours of rain and charts the route of thunderstorms that bring water to unvisited fields, deserts no one ever lays eyes on, drenching the useless wastelands so they're carpeted with wildflowers and grass? And who do you think is the father of rain and dew, the mother of ice and frost? You don't for a minute imagine these marvels of weather just happen, do you? Can you catch the eye of the beautiful Pleiades sisters or distract Orion from his hunt? Can you get Venus to look your way or get the great bear and her cubs to come out and play? Do you know the first thing about the sky's constellations and how they affect things on Earth? Can you get the attention of the clouds and commission a shower of rain? Can you take charge of the lightning bolts and have them report to you for orders? Who do you think gave weather wisdom to the ibis bird and storm savvy to the rooster? Does anyone know enough to number all the clouds or tip over the rain barrels of heaven when the earth is cracked and dry, the ground baked hard as a brick? Can you teach the lioness to stalk her prey and satisfy the appetite of her cubs as they crouch in their den, waiting hungrily in their cave? And who sets out food for the ravens when their young cry out to God, fluttering about because they have no food. Wow, let's just get right back to God speaking from the whirlwind, shall we? What does that mean even? Can you even imagine? My research of various Bible translations speak of God speaking from the eye of a tornado or a hurricane in the place of the word whirlwind. No matter what or how, I am just in awe thinking of it. The Jesus Bible has this to say about Job 38 and 39 even. People do not need answers to their questions and arguments as much as they need to be overwhelmed by the fact that they do not understand everything as well as they think they do. This is precisely what Job chapter 38 and 39 teaches. Job was full of questions and concerns. God's response was not to provide answers, but instead to point Job to everything he did not understand. God knows people infinitely better than they know themselves. God's questions to Job are focused on the world in which Job lived. These questions reveal Job's presumption in expecting God to line up with his understanding when he did not even understand the world around him. As the questions continue throughout Job 38 and 39, it becomes more and more apparent that God is so much higher and wiser than humanity. His words point to the magnitude of his works in creation. When humans open their eyes to those works, they are humbled before God. This is God's world, and God can and will do what he wants. God has used the weather to bless his people and even help his people in battle. God has also used the weather to judge his people by sending a flood or withholding rain. God's ability to use the weather however he likes proves that he is in control of the weather. In reminding Job of this truth, God also illustrated his character through the weather. Thunder and lightning symbolize God's power and majesty. The falling of rain and snow on the earth, which results in the watering of the ground and nurturing of vegetation, pictures the way the word works in the hearts of his people and points to the gracious God who gives life. God compares his judgment to raging storms and likens his blessings 
to refreshing showers. God contrasts Job's feeble questions with his infinite power to create and manage the world. The way that God questions Job points back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, and John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, as Jesus, the Word of God, participated in the act of creation. Jesus' power, strength, purpose, and oversight in creation should be the overarching framework that Christians use when viewing or experiencing suffering. This is who Jesus is, the Creator. All thanks be to Jesus. In His grace and His mercy, He has chosen to be the Savior. All people are totally dependent on Him for life in this world and eternal life with Him in the world to come. Really, though, friends, can you even imagine what a heart-pounding moment to hear the God of the universe asking you, where were you when I created the earth? Full stop. Oh, my. Surely by now you know me well enough to know that any majesty of God in creation talk is going to lead me to some Louis Giglio resource or another on that topic. So as to not disappoint any of you, and because all this talk reminded me of this excerpt I'm going to now read from Louis Giglio's book titled, I Am Not but I know I am. Before I begin, though, as a quick side note, this book was written in 2005, so I do apologize in advance if any recent scientific discoveries vary from any of the data I share. In all honesty, though, my goal is to once again be sure we rightly place ourselves and our lives in relation to our God. You know, our God who spoke the world into being. Okay, listen in now to this excerpt from the chapter titled, Light Flies. Light is fast really fast, traveling at 186,000 miles per second. How fast is that? In the time it takes you to snap your fingers just once, a ray of light can circle the globe seven times. Like I said, light is quick. Light has to be fast because the universe is so big. The warmth you feel on your face when you walk outside on a sunny afternoon is light that left the surface of the sun eight minutes ago. If you wanted to repeat the 93 million mile journey and return to the sun, The trip would take you 17 years flying nonstop, 24 hours a day, in our fastest jet. I don't know about you, but a beam of light covering 93 million miles in 8 minutes is pretty hard for me to comprehend, much less the news that a team of astrophysicists recently discovered what is believed to be the furthest object from Earth, a tiny galaxy that is 13 billion light years away. If you want to put that distance in perspective, consider that a light year, or how far light travels in 365 days, is equal to 5.88 trillion miles. That's a lot of zeros, and frankly, a number too large to really mean anything of significance to most of us. We can fathom an inch, the yard, and a mile. Most of us can get our heads around the fact that it's 3,000 miles from Atlanta to LA, a mile being four times around the track at the local high school football field, thus LA being 12,000 laps from Atlanta. But how are we supposed to grasp the idea of something blazing through the universe at 186,000 miles a second, morning and night, for an entire year? But let's bring things closer to home. You know, home, our galactic neighborhood, the Milky Way, our cozy little corner of space, the Milky Way galaxy, is somewhere between 100,000 and 130,000 light years across. So to get from one end of our neighborhood to the other, all you have to do is zoom 186,000 miles per second for 100,000 plus years. Our galaxy is home to hundreds of billions of stars, only one of which is our sun. Our solar system, whose star is the sun, is located about 25,000 light years from the center of the Milky Way. And just as the planets in our solar system orbit the sun, so our sun and all the other hundreds of billions of other stars in the Milky Way orbit around its center. 
galactic revolution that takes our sun 250 million Earth years to complete. A shrinking feeling is coming over me, and I'm starting to clue in on the fact that I have no idea how small I really am, or how big God truly is. Light flies, yet the universe that so easily blows our minds is nothing more than a speck to God. Scripture tells us that by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. In other words, God created the cosmos without lifting a finger, and when he created the heavens, he did it all without the aid of how to make a universe kit, an existing photo, a template, or a diagram. God was creating in the truest sense of the word, speaking the world into existence out of absolutely nothing. God is the one who makes light fly. God is more massive than our wildest imagination, bigger than the biggest words we have to describe him. And he's doing good today, sustaining galaxies, holding every star in place, stewarding the seemingly chaotic events of Earth to his conclusion within his great story. God is constant. He blinks and a lifetime comes and goes. To him, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. All of human history could be written on his fingernail with plenty of room left over for more. And God is doing well today, thank you. He has no dilemmas, no quandaries, no counselors, no shortages, no rivals, no fears, no cracks, no worries. He is self-existent, self-contained, self-perpetuated, self-powered, and self-aware. In other words, he is God and he knows it. He is timeless, ageless, changeless, always. After an eternity of being God, he shows no sign of wear and tear. He has no needs. His accounts are in the black. He's the owner, not to mention the creator, of all the world's wealth and treasure. He made the gold and silver and the trees we print our paper money on. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and all the hills the cows are standing on. He holds a patent on the skies above, not to mention the earth, the seas and their depths below, the breeze, the color of the sunset, and every flowering thing. They are all his invention, his design, his idea. God does whatever he wants. His purposes are a sure thing. There's no stopping him, no containing him, no refuting him, no cutting him off at the pass, no short-circuiting his agenda. God is in control. He sends forth lightning from his storehouse. He breathes out the wind, waters the earth, raises up rulers, directs the course of nations, births life, ordains death, and in the midst of it all, still has time to be intimately acquainted with everyday affairs of everyone on the planet. God knows everything about everything and everyone. His eyes race back and forth across the cosmos faster than we can scan the words of this page. There is not a bird flying through the air or perched on a branch that escapes his field of vision. He could start with Adam and name every man, woman, and child who has ever lived, describing every detail about each one. To him, pitch darkness and midday are one and the same. Nothing is hidden from him. He wrestles with no mysteries. He doesn't need to wait for a polygraph machine to decipher the truth. He sees clearly and comprehends all he sees. He has never known what it is to have a teacher, a role model, an advisor, a therapist, a loan officer, an adjuster, a doctor, or a mother. God's rule and reign are unrivaled in history and eternity. He sits on an everlasting throne. His kingdom has no end. Little gods abound, but he alone made the heavens and the earth. God has never feared a power struggle or a hostile takeover. He doesn't have to watch his back. He has no equal, no peer, no competition. It makes perfect sense to him that his name should be I Am, and even more sense that my name is I Am Not. You and I are tiny, minuscule, transient, microscopic, and momentary and infinitesimal blip on the timeline of the universe, 
a seemingly undetectable alliance of dust particles held together by the breath of God. The sum of our days is like a vapor, our accumulated efforts like chaff in the wind. Among us, even the richest of the rich owns nothing. The strongest of the strong can be felled with one faltering heartbeat. We are fleeting mortals, frail flesh, little specks, phantoms. If this fact makes you just a tad bit uncomfortable, you're not alone. Invariably, when I talk about the vastness of God and the cosmos, someone will say, you're making me feel bad about myself and making me feel really, really, really small, as if that's the worst thing that could happen. But the point is not to make you feel small, rather to help you see and embrace the reality that you are small, really, really, really small. But that's not where the story ends. Even though we are transient dust particles in a universe that is expanding faster than the speed of light, the unexplainable mystery of mysteries is that you and I are loved and prized by the God of all creation. Simply because he wanted to, he fashioned each of us in his own image, creating within us the capacity to know him. And if that wasn't staggering enough, in spite of our foolishness and rebellious hearts, God has pursued us with relentless passion and patience, fully expressing to us his unfathomable love through the mercy and grace of the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. Sure, just a glimpse of his glory instantly resizes us to microscopic proportions, but God is not trying to deflate us with a Milky Way-sized put-down that erodes any sense of self and reduces us to a pointless existence. Just the opposite. When we see just how tiny we are, our self-worth and our God-worth can become one and the same as we are stunned with the reality that we have been made in his very likeness and invited to know him personally. I am not, but he knows my name. I am not, but he pursued me with his love. I am not, but I have been purchased and redeemed. I am not, but I have been invited into the story, God's story. I am not, but I know the creator of the universe. I am not, but I know I am. Let the depth and wonder of the words sink in. I am not, but I know I am. That's the complete story, the entire gospel, the whole truth about who you are. You are small, but you can be on a first-name basis with I am. You're beyond tiny, but every ounce of you has been bought and redeemed by God's Son. You are a galactic nobody. In fact, 99.999999999999, well, you get the idea, percent of the people on earth have never heard of you. But God knows everything about you and calls you His own. What more could we possibly achieve on earth that is greater than what we already have? We are already friends of God. What greater prize or position could we hope to gain? What praise of men could eclipse the voice of I am speaking to us by name? This excerpt from I am not, but I know I am reminds me of a devotional from First Five's Suffering and Sovereignty study titled There is a God and I'm not him, which reads, In the 1993 hit movie Rudy, Rudy Rudiger was counseled by a local priest regarding his attempts to gain admittance to Notre Dame. The priest advised, Son, in 35 years of religious studies, I've come up with only two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I'm not him. In Job 38, God teaches Job in mere moments what it took Rudy's priest 35 years to learn. It's one of the most fundamental theological principles of all. There is a God, and I am not him. After Job demanded that God settle the matter of his suffering and provide an answer for all of his afflictions, God shattered the silence and began to speak. God addresses Job by posing a litany of rhetorical questions and remarks. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation, God asks. 
Have you ever given order to the morning or showed the dawn its place? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Of course Job knows he is not responsible for the foundation of the earth, the stars in the sky, the waters of the deep, or the storehouses of snow. I'm sure Job would wholeheartedly affirm God is in control of it all. The problem is that theological principles have real-life implications. For instance, if we truly believe God is the one who is powerful enough to shut the sea with doors, then He is powerful enough to take care of you and me. If He knows the way to the dwelling of light, then He is completely capable of lighting our paths. If God is in control of all of creation, then certainly He is in control of my circumstances. Job lost sight of the fact that the principle he affirmed was more than a mere principle. Job forgot that even the smallest particle of dust in the furthest galaxy depends on the sustaining power of God's word. Job forgot that the God who created all is more than capable to care for all. Friend, have you lost sight of who God is? Are you still trying to take the lead? Have you made God too small and in the process forgotten he commands it all? It's so easy to allow the misery and pain of our circumstances to paralyze us to the point that we can no longer see the magnificence of our all-powerful God. Like Job, sometimes we need to broaden our perspective by lifting our eyes up from the ash heap of our distressing circumstances and redirecting our attention to the life-giving majesty, eternal wisdom, and exceptional power of our God so we can live in the glorious light of who He is. And sometimes it takes a whirlwind for God to direct our attention to Him. Friends, I just have to say I feel pretty confident that a clear takeaway we should come away with by the end of these last few chapters of Job is that we need to reimagine ourselves as characters in God's story, utterly dependent on and submissive to His plotline, which will definitely conclude in a way that is absolutely for our good and His glory, no matter the twists and turns we may encounter along the way. God is good. God is good to me. God is good at being God. Sound familiar? I hope so, as we took a closer look at the truth of these statements in the last episode of OOBT. If you hadn't had a chance to listen to that one yet, you might want to press pause now, go listen to episode 22, and then join us here again to be sure you don't miss this point. Yep, it's that important for us to understand, I promise. Now let's pick up our reading in Job chapter 40 from the message. It begins, God then confronted Job directly. Now what do you have to say for yourself? Are you going to haul me, the mighty one, into court and press charges? Job answered, I'm speechless, in awe. Words fail me. I should have never opened my mouth. I've talked too much, way too much. I'm ready to shut up and listen. Okay, so you may be noticing right about now that I only read through the first five verses of Job chapter 40 because I wanted to be sure we didn't miss this conversation and recognize that Job answers God briefly by putting his hand over his mouth in verses 3 through 5. Let's dig in here a bit before moving on to God's challenge to understand his work in the animal kingdom, plus his justice and power. Verse 5, Suffering and Sovereignty Study has this to say about chapter 40, verses 3 through 5 in a section titled, An Audience with the Almighty. When I get to have an audience with the Almighty, I have some questions I want to ask. Maybe you have a list of questions as well. Job wanted an audience with the Almighty and he got it. Now the Almighty had some questions. The first question in the dialogue sets the tone for the remainder of the conversation. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. To which Job replied, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice. But I will say no more. 
A more modern translation might be, No, sir, I will not contend with or accuse you. I've said too much already. God continues to ask questions. God wants Job to recognize his superiority, reminding Job that he has no right to tell God how to be God or to attempt to correct his actions. Job is correct in defending his own uprightness. He had no secret sin. However, in justifying himself, Job had questioned God because of the harsh circumstances he was having to endure. Sometimes, like Job, our horrendous circumstances and great suffering cause us to momentarily forget who God is. But God is a loving and personal God. He longs for intimacy with His children. He is superior and sovereign over all things, yet He is not too high that He doesn't want His children to come to Him with hurts and concerns. As we struggle with our hurts and concerns, let's keep a few things in mind. Number one, God is knowledgeable of all things. What we know will never trump what God knows. When we take our questions to Him, bear in mind He sees what we can't see and makes the decisions based on a picture of eternity, not the immediate. Number two, we can trust God. He works for our good and His glory. It isn't His nature to ignore the well-being of His children. We don't ever have to concern ourselves with justice because He is just and will defend the injustices against us. Even if it seems like He is taking His time, He will not let justice be denied. Three, we must believe the best about God before assuming the worst. He is a loving God who desires us to live in the image in which we were created, as found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Sometimes our shaping needs adjusting. With love and sovereignty, God allows events and momentary discipline to touch our lives. God is always working for us, even when our circumstances are yucky. When we humble ourselves before the Lord and remember that God is sovereign, our circumstances may not change, but our perspective will. Job took a position of humility right away as God begins to remind him of all he has done. In a world plagued with injustice, let's choose to trust God's sovereignty based on past examples of faithfulness. And moving on, according to the New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible, in chapters 38 through 41, God asked Job several questions about the animal kingdom in order to demonstrate how limited Job's knowledge really was. God is not seeking answers from Job. Instead, he was getting Job to recognize and submit to God's power and sovereignty. Only then could he hear what God was really saying to him. Since we have so very much to cover today, and in an effort to save a bit of time, I'm going to ask you to read the sections of God's discussion about all of these animals, including two impressive and even a little bit confusing of the referenced animals, Behemoth in Job 40 and Leviathan in Job 41 on your own. In the meantime, though, let me share what I found in my research about both of these animals that God references in these chapters. The spoken gospel provides this insight as God continues to interrogate Job by calling him to study two creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan. Most likely, these are references to the mythological chaos creatures of Job's ancient world. These powerful creatures supposedly roamed the earth and caused death and suffering. But in God's final speech, he shows that these chaotic forces are under his control. He uses them as illustrations of how Job should act toward a God like him. Job is like the chaos monster Behemoth. Behemoth and Job are both God's creatures. Behemoth is preeminent among his kind, just as Job is the most successful among his. Behemoth is protected by lotus trees like Job is protected by God's hedge. Behemoth's strength and preeminent position means that he's untroubled by turbulent waters and confident in the middle of adversity. This should be Job's attitude as well. God has given Job strength, power, and preeminence. Even though Job now experiences turbulence, he should trust the God who made him and also controls a chaos monster called Behemoth. God is like a different mythological creature, Leviathan. 
Leviathan is untamable and submits to no one. Leviathan cannot be wounded. Leviathan is unequaled on the earth. And Leviathan dominates the proud. Job should humble himself before God since he has no hope of domesticating Leviathan, and God is greater than Leviathan. Most ancient minds thought chaos and order were in constant battle. Sometimes chaos would win, other times order would win. The best you could do was hedge your bets, worship the right gods, and pray you make it out alive. But the Bible understands that God is in charge of both chaos and order. Both Behemoth and Leviathan are on leashes. So far, the book of Job tells us that neither justice nor innocence can fully explain why we suffer or don't suffer. Not all suffering is because we've sinned. Not all blessings come because we deserve them. And sometimes, suffering comes for no reason at all. It can seem as if chaos is the only option left. We think maybe God doesn't have a master plan. Sometimes the forces of chaos just win. But God's last speech to Job reminds him that no suffering is in his blind spot. There are no chaotic monsters more powerful than him, and God proves it by becoming an innocent sufferer. Jesus was at the mercy of seemingly chaotic forces. One of Jesus' disciples betrayed him. The rest ran away, and one, in a panic, ran away naked. Jealous Pharisees present Jesus to a cowardly Pilate who flogs him pointlessly, only to have an angry mob lawlessly exonerate a murderer so that an innocent man might be crucified. Soldiers even rolled a dice to see who got to strip Jesus naked in a game of chance. There seemed to be no order in Jesus' death, no master plan, just chaotic evil vented on an innocent sufferer. But God had the chaos of Jesus' death on a leash. The Apostle Peter says that Jesus' lawless crucifixion was actually according to the definite plan of God. The most chaotic act in history, when Jesus suffers and innocently dies, was part of God's master plan. Jesus proves that uncontrolled chaos can't be the reason why we suffer, because God has chaos on a leash. Neither Pilate nor Leviathan can break free from him. Rather than blame God for our suffering, both Job and Jesus invite us to humble ourselves before a God whose Leviathan-like power controls behemoth-like chaos. Verse 5, Suffering and Sovereignty Study adds, Throughout this book, Job and his friends have been speculating about God's character and purpose in Job's suffering. As we have studied, I've been asking questions as well. What do I believe about God? What does it say about God when bad things happen to people who don't seem to deserve them? Is my faith and confidence in Him unshakable even when life reels out of control? But beginning in Job 38 and culminating here in Job 41, the one who doesn't need to speculate speaks. After all the guessing and speeches, God does something remarkable. He enters into Job's suffering to bring context and comfort. Over the course of four chapters, we read what the Lord says about Himself, His power, and His authority over all of creation, including Job. Here in Job chapter 41, God refers to an imposing creature called Leviathan. Known to people of the ancient Near East as a mythical or perhaps real sea monster, the Leviathan often is credited with wrecking havoc for humanity. God uses this imagery of a colossal and ominous sea creature to illustrate His superiority to everything in nature. God's words are helpful but that he's speaking to Job at all is critical. After all this time, Job is finally able to hear from God himself, a prospect that Job had only hoped for in death. This is the hope of the book of Job, that in Job's suffering, God does not stay silent or removed. He came close to Job. He entered into Job's suffering. He has a purpose in both Job's suffering and in how he responds to Job. God wants Job to know him. God's desires for a relationship, not just with Job, but all of his children and friend, it is shocking. It is unthinkable. 
It is grace-filled that the Creator of heaven and earth would condescend to speak with His creation and enter into our suffering. This is the gospel. It's prefigured here in Job, but fully realized later on in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. John tells us the Word became flesh to live among us, experience our pain, and save us from future and eternal suffering. God the Son took on human form to enter into our heartache, grief, struggle, and pain. Though sinless, Jesus knows exactly what you and I experience. He didn't stay removed. He didn't stay silent. The Word came here with you and me. As we close the book of Job, even if we forget the speeches and accusations, let's remember that our God, Job's God, is the God who speaks. The suffering and sovereignty study continues. In seasons of pain, I have been desperate to hear God speak to me. Do you know the anguish of straining to hear His voice? I do. I think Job did too. And when God begins to speak, I'm not sure it's exactly what Job wanted to hear. God doesn't quite explain Himself. It's not a tidy theology of how He works in suffering and pain. So what is He saying? It can be a bit hard to follow because God references a spectacular creature called Leviathan. We don't know for certain what Job pictured as God described the Leviathan. Regardless, God wanted Job to realize that the Creator is far beyond any creature. I don't know what you want to hear God say when you're in pain. I often want to know the hows and whys of hurt and a timeline for when relief will come. But honestly, most of us would probably be helped to reread God's speech at the end of Job. We need to be reminded that God is more powerful than anything we can see with our eyes. He cannot be tamed like a domesticated pet. There is nothing that is his equal. So now let's continue with Job chapter 42, which reads, Job answered God, I'm convinced you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked who is muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes. I admit it. I was the one. I babbled on about things far above me, made small talk with wonders way over my head. You told me, listen and let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions. You give the answers. I admit I once lived by rumors of you. Now that I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears, I'm sorry. I'll never do that again, I promise. I'll never again live on crusts of hearsay, crumbs of rumor. So, for the past four chapters of Job, God has described His majesty with multiple examples. From the creation of the earth to the heavens, from the weather to wildlife, God presents His glory and strength to Job. Finally, in some of Job's last recorded words in this book, we hear his humble response, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Up to now, Job hasn't repented of his friend's accusations. He has steadfastly declared his innocence. But now, faced with the words and reality of God, we hear Job confesses his pride of speaking things about God he didn't really know. Job realizes he has known his God in part, but now his spiritual understanding has grown as he sees more of God as he really is. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. As Job's eyes are open to the glory of God, his eyes are opening to something else, the truth about himself. The more we know of God, the more we know of ourselves. As we see God in his glory, our posture should change. As we realize his holiness, we see ourselves in a more appropriate relationship. This right understanding shouldn't lead us to hate ourselves, but to humbly accept that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Job continues to reveal his humble heart, and that is why he is such a model of faith. Even though he was wronged by Satan, his friends, and his wife, Job still was willing to see his own sin. But this only happens when Job sees the holiness of God. 
When our circumstances and suffering battle for our hearts, let us remember to turn our eyes toward the Lord. In doing so, we will remember His power and majesty and that nothing is beyond His concern. The Jesus Bible adds to these thoughts by saying, God treats people in ways they do not deserve, and this is a good thing. All people deserve punishment from God for the sins they have committed against Him. Instead of punishment, God decided to draw near to humanity in grace. His grace is a gift that people do not deserve to receive, and it could only be received with the surrendered hands of faith. God has already displayed grace through Job's suffering. When Satan wanted to tempt and test Job, it was God who limited the extent of Satan's attacks. That was grace. And Job's past fortunes and eventual restoration were all by grace alone. His prosperity was not a reward for his integrity, but a gift from God, who restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before, and blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. Job encountered God. It was only after the intense season of suffering, prayer, and waiting that a transformed Job got to see God for who he really is. Job's response of humility and repentance should serve as an example for every person who encounters God. After all of Job's questions and frustrations, he was left with the one phrase that he can confess in confidence, I know you can do all things. When Job saw God more clearly, he began to see himself more clearly. When people discover the reality of God, they find the reality of themselves. Job only discovered these things through an intense season that seemed unbearable at times. But God knows from the beginning what He intends in the end. He knows the journey that He needed to take Job through, so God did it. And for Job to arrive at the destination of a transformed view of God was sheer grace. The ultimate way God has shown His grace is by sending Jesus Christ to die for sinners. The cross leaves people with limitless reasons for repenting of their rebellion against God, and it should lead them to walk, live, and love more like Jesus. Continuing on in Don't Give Up Too Soon, Verse 5, Suffering and Sovereignty Study adds this view to Job chapter 42, verses 16 and 17, which in the New International Version reads, After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. Years ago, I was reading a best-selling novel. It was over 1,000 pages, epic in size and story, and consumed me for weeks. A respected acquaintance recommended it and once committed, I stuck with it to the end, in spite of wanting to quit, often. But now, after reading the book in its entirety, I can see the amazing story. The plot progressed steadily. There was tension, conflict, and eventually resolution. Good did triumph, although not without many bumps along the way. I'm so glad I didn't give up too soon. And I have to believe Job is thankful that he didn't give up too soon either. There were times in Job's story we sense he's about ready to give up, to abandon his faith, to admit defeat. Yet... In spite of unrelenting agony, despite accusations from friends, despite the silence of God, Job battled to hold on to the truth. And a battle it was. Job faced his circumstances like a warrior. We see him struggle repeatedly, weakened by the pain of his loss. Job wobbled a bit for sure, but then planted his feet and steadfastly held on to faith that his God, who had never abandoned him before, would not do so now. Being faithful isn't for the faint of heart. Holding on to what you believe about God and what He has spoken to you when faced with circumstances that seem to contradict both takes courage, but the reward for not giving up is worth it. Job received his reward while still on earth. Job chapter 42 verse 12 tells us, The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. God doubled Job's fortune, restored his friends and family, increased his livestock, and gave him ten more children. We know those children didn't replace the ones who had died in Job's heart. 
but it certainly must have been a comfort to Job to get to watch them live and multiply to the fourth generation. While we aren't promised the same earthly rewards after our suffering as Job received, for those of us who've accepted Christ, an eternal heavenly reward awaits. This truth can bring hope, even when part of our story is difficult. Yet the author of our stories has a purpose for every page and chapter in our lives. There's an epic story being written, and he is building and developing the plot every day. No story is conflict-free. No story is complete without a challenge. Victory is empty without a struggle. And we are promised victory because of Jesus. We have his words to hold on to. In John chapter 16, verse 33, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. As we end the story of Job, filled with both heartache and promise, may we be encouraged as we face our own suffering. May God fill us with the holy boldness to keep walking with Him despite our circumstances. Let us hold on to the truths we've learned together about suffering and God's character. Suffering does not mean God has forsaken us. Sometimes more is happening in the heavenly realm than we can know. God desires a trust-filled, not transactional relationship with us. God's character is good no matter what lie our circumstances scream. God's love is true and His plans are always good for those who love Him. No matter what we've experienced, we can stand on these truths. We can hold on to the character of God and like Job, we will see God's goodness in our lives. As a way of drawing this study to a close, listen into how the spoken gospel summarizes what is happening here at the end of the book of Job by saying, It's difficult to understand why exactly God restores Job's prosperity. The whole book has been arguing that God doesn't operate according to a strict cause-and-effect system of justice. To reward Job for his repentance seems counterproductive, not to mention that restored wealth doesn't erase suffering. Job's new children don't replace or heal his grief over the children he lost. Remember that the book of Job isn't about explaining why Job suffered. It's about God and how he rules his universe. The accuser said Job is wrong to reward the righteous. Job said God is wrong to let the innocent suffer. The friends insist that God operates according to their ideas of justice, and the book of Job has proven them all wrong. Rewarding good behavior doesn't necessarily mean we will have bad motives. Judging God's character based on our limited knowledge or power is inappropriate, and binding God to our understanding of justice in order to blame others for their suffering is foolish. This allows us to see Job's restored wealth for what it's meant to be, a gift. Job does not deserve prosperity. God is not obligated to double his fortune. Job's fortunes were never God's mechanical response to his obedience, but rather evidence of God's pleasure in blessing a man he takes pride in. Okay, friends, as we close our time together, I would like to share some truths I recently came across from Louis Giglio that I feel will meet us right where we're at. As we end our time in the book of Job and in the hard Job moment seasons we find ourselves in, let these five realities to remember when life is crushing you be the prayer of our hearts not only today, but also in the days, weeks, months, even years to come. Number one, God sees me. Number two, God knows everything about my story. Number three, God is working in and on my story, even though I might not see it. Number four, God is greater, period. Number five, God will use my present pain in my future story for my good and his glory. Thank you, Father God, for these truths and for being the God who sees us especially when we are in the hard places and seasons of life. Amen and amen. Okay, so please remember, friends, that if you want to help others find their way to this podcast, one way you can do that is by rating and reviewing on the platform where you listen. If you can't review on your platform, check out Apple Podcasts because you can always review this podcast there. 
I love to read through your reviews and reminding myself that there are actual people out there listening, that I'm not just talking to the wall at the M&M Swig Shed for each episode. <laughs> and truthfully, they don't just benefit me, but they also position you to help others find and decide whether or not they want to listen to Open Our Bibles Together podcast as well. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends. They don't just benefit me, but they also position you to help others find and decide whether or not they want to listen to Open Our Bibles Together podcast as well. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends. Mm-hmm.